Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about the uh, guest that we have today because he is the dealmaker himself. So without further ado, David Steinberg, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Alexandra. It's really exciting to be here. So so right out of college, you uh, I mean you studied in Washington and, and Jefferson. Is that right? That is right, yes. And then you kind of like stayed around the area and then did you go straight into business or what was that? triggering event that got you into starting Sterling Cellular? Like what happened right right before that? So I, I came out of school during uh, the last Great Recession, right? There seems to be one every 10 years. It was 1990 when I was coming out of school and nobody was hiring. It was a, a very tough time. Uh, I ended up going to work on the Hill for Senator Kennedy. So Ted Kennedy was my boss's boss. You know, I didn't obviously report into him and started working on telecom issues. And it's very interesting. I started learning about wireless. They were starting to sell wireless licenses and it was starting to really heat up. And I, I thought that would be a really interesting kind of business, although I didn't have a lot of business acumen at 20 years old. So what I did was I ended up going to work for an insurance company selling you know disability insurance to self-employed people and it was funny i remember made two phone calls i called my stepfather who was a seasoned entrepreneur who built a very large company and sold it and he said this will be the greatest education you could possibly have and i called my ivy league educated father with his mpa mba and he said are you insane you're going to go sell insurance uh, I did it. I did it for about a year before I went out, and then I started Sterling Cellular. So it was uh, it was a really exciting time. And as always, uh, as I always like to say, I became an entrepreneur for the same reason a lot of us do. Nobody would hire me at the time, so I had very low opportunity cost to uh, to, to getting out there and doing it. Got it. And we're talking about 1993, right? So what was the uh, what would you say was that triggering? event for you where you said, I'm going to take the leap of faith on this? You know, it, it's interesting. It was, it, I think it was actually 92 or 93. I don't remember which, but, but wherever you saw that, I'm sure it's right. Uh, I had been selling insurance for about a year and a half. 
I was doing very well at it. I had really fine-tuned my sales skills. And I just saw no long-term opportunity in that world for me. And, and interestingly enough, I got invited to give a speech in Ohio for the insurance company that I worked for. And as a part of it, I had already built a, a team. I had a, you know, not a big team, but a team of five or six people who worked with me. And I was invited to bring them to the speech. So I went to, a, I remember it like it was yesterday, a budget rent-a-car. And sitting on the counter was a gift certificate for a free wireless phone. And I said, wow, I, I could use a free wireless phone. That would be really cool. So I put it in. Back then, we wore suits, right? That was a suit jacket pocket. And I, I wore it. I went to give the speech. I came back. And two weeks later, I put that suit back on. And I found that gift certificate. And I went down to a place called ASAP Cellular in, in Northern Virginia. And I said to the woman, how do you afford to do this? And she said, oh, my goodness. We get big commissions. And we make a percentage of the recurring revenue forever. And the margins are huge. And all we have to do is give a phone away, which gives us a three-month break even. And I literally walked out of that store and said, I am in the wrong business. <laughs> and I, uh, I left uh, the insurance company and I founded Sterling Cellular in my basement uh, a couple of weeks later. So between the telecom information that I gathered working on the Hill and the information I learned through that process, I did what I now call a triangulation process, where I take three different you know, kind of data points and I put them together to help me with my decision making. And in that case, I felt like I'd made a lot of money for a young man of my age at that point. But I also knew I wasn't going to be able to create wealth working for somebody else. And, and, and at that time, I just, you know, you had very little to lose. And I thought it would be a cool thing to do. And I did it. Got it. And this started out of the uh, basement of your, of your house there in Maryland. Yes, that back, that's back when I lived in Bethesda, Maryland. Uh, and I founded it in the basement of my townhome. I remember it was it was the funniest part about it was we grew that business pretty quickly for you know for that time. You're going back, uh, you know, a long time now. But uh, we ended up with 20 employees working out of my basement, and every one of my neighbors would every day complain that people were parked in their parking spots and we couldn't we legitimately couldn't get enough parking, and everybody who was in our neighborhood hated us. So we finally had to open an office. And I was like, this is horrible because I had to spend the money on office space, but it, it ended up working out pretty well. <laughs> so the, the first year there, uh, David, I mean, you guys did like over a million in sales. Is that right? I mean, in the 90s, early 90s, over a million in sales first year. I mean, it's a, it's, it's quite significant. Yeah. Yeah. We did. We did a million in sales our first year and we did, I think, over 10 million our second year. So it was a really back then that was a lot of money. You know, it was uh, it was a really big, uh, big deal to us at the time. And, and we built that business and we sold it. Uh, and, and that was a, a pretty good outcome. Got it. And, and what was the triggering behind selling the business and to who did you sell this? So I, it's interesting. I've built five companies uh, as the operator. I've invested in far more through our fund. But but I built five companies as the operator. I've sold three taken one public, and now I run Zeta Global. Uh, of the three I sold, two of them I sold to AT&T, and, and that was one of them. Nice. Uh, so it, it, it worked, out, worked out well. We, we sold it to AT&T. Well, at the time, it was called Southwestern Bell Mobile Systems, which then became Singular, which then became 
AT&T wireless again. So it's, Got it. you, you could go through kind of the whole uh, makeup of the telecom system, how it broke apart, lived apart, then all came back together over a 20-year period. And why, David, why did you decide to sell? You know, they it, it was one of those things where we had built out a really interesting retail ecosystem. And I didn't like being in the retail business. I didn't like having to manage as many stores as we had. So we sold it. And then we started back then a telemarketing company to uh, telemarket the sale of wireless and communications products. And we felt we found that one person sitting at one desk could sell as many wireless phones a month as somebody sitting in a kiosk in a mall. Uh, or two people could sell as much as a full-line retail store. So we ended up at one point with 5,000 uh, telemarketing sales reps at my next company, which was Sterling Communications. Uh, and we built that into a pretty interesting business. So that we, we ended up selling that to AT&T as well. <laughs> so wow. Was, so and, and what were the... And what were the terms? Are the terms say public of uh, uh, the both both transactions? No, we didn't make either public, but both were in the tens of millions, not the hundreds of millions. Got but it. the great thing about those transactions were we didn't really have any partners. Uh, so unlike uh, the way we build businesses now, where we have tons of outside capital and shareholders, you might sell them for less, but you kept more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, because right now, I mean, there's like a lot of people raising tons of money and, and then they sell them for like billions. But, you know, people need to know that when you're raising money, you're diluting, you're diluting yourself. So well, obviously the not. percentage is less. The thing that most people don't get that I really want to, you know, kind of make clear is you're not just taking the dilution. You're also having to live with the liquidation preferences. You know, right. we, we hear a lot about how valuations are skyrocketing and, and everybody's becoming a unicorn. But if you're putting a, a three or four times liquidation preference on that capital, or you're putting a two, one or two times with a, with a deferred dividend that compounds, as a founding team, you are really pushing yourselves down the capital stack because then the teams all goes and raise debt against the equity they raise from, from the venture debt guys. And then that sits in front of them. So it's, uh, it's, uh, I always joke that, uh, you know, uh, most entrepreneurs today who are raising outside capital, they do it really quickly. I'm always a fan of bootstrapping for the first few years, if you can. Now, the great thing about Zeta was I was able to be the first two rounds of funding with my partner, John Scully, and my other partner, Bill Lamont. So the three of us were able to put up, you know, effectively the first three rounds where I did the first 10 million myself. So, yeah. and we'll uh, get into, into Seda uh, globally in just one second. So, so what, after, after these two transactions, uh, David, you go on to found your next one, which is Infonic. Is this right? Yes. So we okay, found so, it in, so how did this happen? So we figured out, interestingly enough, we figured out that through the uh, virtual sale of wireless phones through telemarketing, meaning you no longer had a store, you had to deliver it, that the internet was going to be the next big distribution point for wireless. So we founded uh, Infonic on the premise you could sell and activate wireless phones on the internet. That was the original premise. It then grew 
into the ability to push information off of the internet onto the mobile ecosystem and the ability to disseminate information to decentralized mobile points versus having to sit on a static device on your desk, which sounds pretty humdrum today. But when we did that in 1997-98, it was uh, pretty game-changing. So we built that business, grew it, we took it public. We then founded a separate business called Wireflop, which was a the largest uh, seller, independent seller of wireless phones on the internet. It was effectively the uh, we called it the Expedia of wireless phones, and we built that. We then sold Wirefly to Infonic, and then we took Infonic public as a merged company. So technically, my fourth company, which was Wirefly, Infonic being the third, we sold to my third company. Then we took that business public, and what became a pretty big, pretty big IPO. I, I always love to joke that in 2004, Infonic was the second biggest tech IPO that year behind a little company that almost nobody has heard of called Google. Uh, they, they fared a little bit better than we did. Nice. But, nice. but, but for one year, we were, we were number two. <laughs> that, that's amazing. And, and I love to hear the, uh, the IPO experience. But before we get there, is it possible to walk us through like how, what was the strategic uh, um, how did you guys capitalize uh, the um, the company? So we that so we interestingly enough, when I sold Sterling Communications, which was the telemarketing company to AT and T, they had no need for our fulfillment facilities, our uh, engineering groups, for our pick, pack, and ship of wireless products and phones. So literally at the closing table, I said, "Hey." Would you mind if we kept that instead of you taking it and having to deal with shutting it down? And at the time, uh, South, it, was, it was singular, said, yeah, we don't want that. I then said, you know what would also be great is why don't you give us the exclusive contract to sell wireless phones over the Internet for AT&T? And at that time, nobody even knew what the Internet was. They were like, sure, sounds great. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so for a number of years, we were the only seller of wireless phones over the Internet for AT&T Wireless. Uh, now, that that obviously changed uh, at some point, but uh, but that was a, a pretty good head start for us. But I took all of those assets and I did them as a tax free contribution of assets into what became Infonic. So we were able to maintain a pretty large hold of it. And then we went out and raised outside capital. It was it was. I think it was 1998 when we raised our first outside capital for Infonic. And literally, we, we sat down with a great team, it was a guy named Tom Smith, who at the time was running Mid-Atlantic Venture Fund with, with his partner, Mark, and, and a couple of the other guys. And we gave the pitch. By the time I got back to my office, they were in Northern Virginia, we were in Georgetown, on our fax machine, just to speak about how old this was, was a term sheet for their investment. They literally faxed the term sheet to invest, and we got it before we were able to get back from Northern Virginia to our offices in Georgetown. Uh, and they became our first investor. And then we did a series of investments there that ended up with, uh, you know, TCV, uh, 
you know, uh, one of the most important kind of Silicon Valley tech investors did it, did our, our final investment before we went public. So, okay. So, so let's talk about the, um, the, uh, so, so basically what we're talking about late nineties. So what were some of the profile of investors? Because the ecosystem for investing in startups and in privately held companies was not as developed as we have it today. So no, what very, were some, it was very, different, right? Yeah. Very different. Very Silicon Valley based. I mean, listen, it's still New York, Boston, Silicon Valley based, uh, you know, now, you know, if you look at stuff like, uh, Steve Case is doing to try to make venture capital available through the whole country, uh, you know, really interesting stuff and, and, and what they're doing. But the vast majority of venture capital back then still came directly from San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And we raised capital from the Mid-Atlantic Venture Fund as a startup, uh, but then uh, ended up raising our largest capital round, which was more money by far than we had raised in every round prior to it from Technology Crossover Ventures, which is based in Palo Alto. And, uh, you know, Jay Hogue, who is the legendary uh, visionary founder of that group, uh, led the investment into our firm with Will Griffith and, uh, and Jay joined our board. And, you know, it was an amazing experience at the time. And, and, yeah, but but back then you had to have that kind of San Francisco Silicon Valley capital to really make it work. Today the capital is is pretty well distributed between San Francisco Silicon Valley, Boston, and New York. Although it's still you still look to the valley to raise your your meaningful capital if you're a startup. Got it. So how much capital was raised there before the IPO? You know, I, I, I don't remember the exact amount, but, you know, we did. I know the round with TCV was 56 million in primary uh, right. and we had raised money along the way. So, you know, call it 75 plus million pre IPO. And yeah. then we raised about 100 million in the IPO. Uh, okay. So, you know, we raised meaningful capital. Of course, the, the company priced at a $750 million value and, and ended up trading to $1.6 billion at one point as a public company uh, and, and did well all along the way. Got it. And, and how was the IPO experience for you? You know, it was, I'd like to say, painful, but it was probably one of the coolest weeks of my life. You know, as a serial entrepreneur, you know, I think most of us dream of that kind of IPO experience. Uh, it's also one of those things that it's incredible, but once you're running a public company, it's nowhere near as fun as you think it's going to be. Right. Uh, but, but no, we were, you know, we did the roadshow. We had, we had an incredible team between Deutsche Bank and JP Morgan leading our deal. Uh, you know, we, the, the range was 15 to 17. We ended up pricing it at 19 and opening at 24. Uh, some amazing stories along the way. Uh, you know, we did a, a big party like a lot of companies did at that time in the NASDAQ overlooking Times Square, you know, flew off into the sunset that night on a, you know, whatever the, the latest G was at that time. Back to DC. <laughs> you know, it was literally right. as, as storied as you could get. You know, it right. was uh, it was as good an experience as you could have had as an I, you, you You were flying with the bankers, I would assume, in their private well, we, jet. We flew for 10 days all over the country on private jets and, uh, you know, we're with the, the, the teams out of Deutsche Bank. In fact, 
uh, Andy Cass and Emmanuel D'Souza from Deutsche Bank are still dear friends who, who took the company public. And John Eitenberg uh, at Deutsche Bank is still a dear friend. And we know all the J.P. Morgan guys still very, very well. And, and you know, Allen and company was on the book, as was, you know, at the time, Thomas Weisel and, and others. And it was, uh, you know, it was it was the storied completion of that process. You know, it, when 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 you go out as an entrepreneur and you start at 21 years old, you dream of taking a company public and, and, and we hit the dream and then you wake up and you're in the reality of having, having to run a public company, which I will yeah. tell you is, is not fun. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, we did not enjoy that process. <laughs> you know, people yeah. always say to me at Zeta, well, you're, you know, you're pretty big. Are you thinking about going public? And I say, yeah, I think at some point I'll have to do it, but, but I'm putting it off as long as I can. I hear you. I mean, the other guests that I've had uh, as well, sharing their experience of being a publicly uh, traded company, they were not very happy about their experience until the, they did the acquisition. But anyhow, how, how big uh, was the, um, what, were you guys able to take in Phonic in terms of like employees and, and sales? Because I think you guys, did you guys take it to like, I think it was like 300 million in revenue or more than we that? Did. Or? Yeah. So we, at our peak, we did about 350 million in revenue. We had about a thousand employees. Uh, and it was a, it was a, it was a, a cool company. You know, it was, we were, we were really on the forefront of what was happening with the internet meets mobile meets information. And, uh, you know, it, it worked until it didn't, you know, the, the most valuable lesson. And I, you know, I always take valuable lessons out of failure you know, even though Zeta by most accounts was considered a failure towards the end, it certainly didn't finish up that way. Although the group that bought it well after I left ended up turning it around and selling it to Walmart. Uh, and today it's really the, the crux of the Walmart talk more product, which is Walmart's wireless product. But for, for what we did, uh, you know, the, the three big, big things that I've tried to take with me is one, the people who get you to where you are are not always the right people to take you where you want to go, which is very hard as an entrepreneur. Yeah. You really want to be loyal to the people who have been loyal to you. But if you don't build around them and you don't trade them into people who can take you to the next level, you end up not being able to get to the next level. Uh, two, uh, don't borrow $100 million in an up market to buy back stock when you're burning cash. Bad idea going into the you know, one of the biggest downturns of our, our generation, yeah. you know, we were, we were sitting on that balance sheet going into 2008, uh, even though I was no longer CEO of the company, I was still chairman. Uh, and three finance and processes are substantially more important than you understand as you scale your business. And those are things that, you know, once again, not to tout Zeta, those are things that we've really taken seriously here that I probably didn't even know when I was running in Fox. And I'm, and I'm excited about talking uh, about Zeta, but what I want to ask you, David, is the, um, you know, all the founders that are listening and, and myself included, you know, the, the highs of being an entrepreneur, they are really fantastic, but the lows are also very tough. And yes. I, I probably assume that for you, uh, after experiencing this, this crisis and, and seeing, you know, uh, uh, the downturn and, and all of that, I'm sure that for you leading the business at that point was was really difficult. So so how was how was this experience for you as well? 
Well, I mean, listen, I, what you also don't know is I was going through a difficult divorce simultaneously. So you want yeah. to talk about a low point in life. Yeah. Uh, it sucked. I mean, I don't know how to put it technically other than that. It, it was definitely the low point of my adult life. Uh, seeing this great company we'd built effectively being taken from us. Uh, the good news is it was a great business. It had the wrong balance sheet. And it definitely had the wrong capital structure. And the guys who ended up buying it ended up doing really well with it. Uh, but as the guy who was, quote unquote, losing it, that was not a fun time in my life. And, and I was going through a lot of personal turmoil as well. Uh, but, you know, you have to own your mistakes. And, and where that ended up, you know, it had the wrong capital structure and it had the wrong balance sheet going into the downturn that we dealt with because of the decisions I made as CEO. So, yeah. you know, you, you, you learn from that, you take ownership of it, uh, and you, you hopefully take those, uh, take those lessons into the, the next evolution of what you personally become and what you personally try to build. And that's where I am today. And what was, for example, for you coming out of this, uh situation where you are dealing on the personal side and then also on the business side with with unpleasant uh, scenarios. What was that? Did you have like a big breakthrough moment for you? You know, I didn't. Interestingly enough, I had a lot of little breakthroughs. You know, there wasn't like I woke up one day and said, aha. I mean, but, but you have to understand, I moved from the office I was in for many years as the CEO, chairman and founder of Infonic to the office as the new CEO and founder of what became Zeta. I literally moved my furniture from one to the other. <laughs> wow. So I was not a sit around and I'm still not a sit around type of individual. I, I generally have a lot going on and, and for better or worse, I found that keeping myself busy through that process and building my next business yeah. was, uh, was the best way for me to cope with it. Uh, and it, you know, listen, it worked. Now, a lot of lessons came out of it and a lot of reflection and a lot of time looking back at what I could have done better and what I didn't do right. But there was no moment where I said, all right, let's go off into the, the woods. I mean, I do want to say that I was very fortunate in that I had already sold three companies uh, by the time I had founded this. So, you know, I wasn't I wasn't losing my home. I wasn't worried about paying for the kids' prep schools, <laughs> uh, yeah. which a lot of guys run into. So I had, I had the luxury of of having put a lot away and having been smart with what I had made. You know what I'm yeah. saying? So that yeah. even even when I had to split it up <laughs> through my divorce, I still was fine. You know what I mean? That's uh, amazing. Well, you know, listen, I just I just didn't. We just didn't spend money on stupid stuff. And, and you know, interestingly enough, I still try not to. Uh, because as an entrepreneur, you learn. There are always going to be highs. There are always going to be lows. I still have, funny story, going back years, I'm a pack rabbit. Like, I'm terrible. I, 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 I keep everything. I have an off-site storage facility in D.C. where I still keep everything. And at some point over the last few years, I was going through stuff. I found a stack of sterling cellular payroll checks to me that I never cashed because we didn't wow. have the money in the bank for me to cash them. But 
I ran them through the payroll so the taxes would be taken out. I didn't want to get in trouble. Yeah. But but I made sure that everybody else's payroll cleared. <laughs> that's amazing. And I well, that, never, and, and and as an entrepreneur, that that happens. I hear you, but that says a lot about you. No, like putting your people first. So that's saying well, that's to. great. Absolutely. So to. so let's talk about David. Let's talk about bouncing back, and uh, let's talk about Seda Global. So Seda Global is uh, this uh, kind of like. It started because you started putting together a couple of companies together, but but walk us through the incubation of this idea and to how you brought it to life. So the real concept initially was how do you make data actionable? You know, the other concept when you look at triangulation was at that time, 10 years ago, if you wanted to be a large company, you needed a CRM provider, you needed a data provider if you even bought data, you needed an agency to build your marketing. You needed creative. You needed uh, a, a uh, you know some type of network to activate e-commerce. You needed a network to run ads online. You needed at one point sixteen different vendors, by my count, to manage what Zeta today delivers through its marketing cloud in one solution. So. The two real concepts were, how do you make data actionable? How do you take data? Because back 11 years ago when we founded it, people were starting to look at data as interesting. Big data didn't even exist yet. But we were looking at it and saying, okay, more data is being created a day than the 100 years leading up to that day because of the advent of digital. And we thought that using that data and turning it into the ability to help large companies create, maintain, and monetize customers would be a massive differentiator going forward. Now, the truth of the matter is we didn't know exactly how we were going to do that, but that was the premise. So we then started buying really interesting small companies that either owned very interesting pools of data that they had permission to market to, or software that allowed people to market to it. And we merged all of that into today, which is, you know, by most accounts, Zeta Global is the third largest uh, data and analytics platform in the world. Uh, 2.2 billion people a month hit our platform that we track everything they're reading, what they're searching, what they're buying, where they are buying it. On top of all of their demographic information, we have about 2,500 cells of data or, or information points per person on a static basis. And we import about a trillion marketing signals a month that we match back to the unique individual where we build an intent-based score. So we allow our clients who are very large financial institutions, very large automotive manufacturers, very large airlines, very large travel companies, uh, where we help them by using their CRM data merged with our data cloud to use our marketing cloud to help them create, maintain, and monetize customers on a substantially lower cost with us than they could do without us. Uh, and, you know, the business has grown pretty rapidly. Uh, we're nice. 14, we're 1400 employees operating out of 26 offices on four continents. Uh, and you know, it's been uh, interesting. We have 758 clients, uh, 
500 of which approximately are in the Fortune 1000 largest companies in the world. Uh, one of the other things we learned at, at Infonic was we effectively at one point had four customers. You know, the four main wireless carriers were our main customers. We interacted with millions of end users, but almost all of our revenue came from those customers. Today, Zeta has 750 customers, not one of which makes up even 5% of our annual revenue. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's really been interesting as we've built it. The other thing I learned at Enphonic is if you build a company that's profitable and has cash flow, it's very difficult for people to, to come down hard on you. And uh, Zeta is a very profitable uh, nicely cash flow positive business that allows us the type of flexibility that a lot of high growth tech companies don't have. Got it. And so what was the uh, founding team of Zeta? So Zeta was founded by my partner, John Scully and I, uh, I always joke, John uh, is a little bit better known than I am having run two small companies, one being Pepsi, one being Apple. Right. Uh, but uh, really it was the two of us. Uh, you know, and then my other, my third partner, Bill Landman, who runs Mainline Capital, which is a Philadelphia, you know, investment vehicle. This is the third company that that Billy's invested in, and he was our seed investor with me. Uh, and this is the third company I've done with John. So John and I have uh, sold one company, took one public, and then founded this. Uh, and it's been been really interesting. But but you want to talk about back to your original question, kind of a life moment and uh, kind of waking up uh, in reality. I went from having a thousand employees uh, on you know, Monday, that afternoon I moved into my new offices and I had two employees. <laughs> oh. So it was uh, pretty interesting, but, but, but uh, in November of uh, 2007, uh, that's when I moved into the new office space and we didn't really found Zeta until the spring. We founded the vehicle uh, in in 2007, we raised capital uh, in November of 2007, most of which I put up myself with Billy and John. Uh, and then and then we did our real launch going into the spring of 2008. Got it. Because for something like this, I mean, I would imagine that to support the growth and, and you know, you probably learned your lesson with Infonic, like being on the debt side and on the credit side. So now with 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 Seda, you are now you have that experience, but you you, you've raised money. So how much capital have you guys raised today? So in outside equity, we've raised about $150 million. Uh, we do have debt today, but our debt is, you know, call it two to two and a half times our EBITDA, not six times. <laughs> Got it. Uh, and, uh, you know, we manage the debt against the cash in the bank. So our net debt is below two. If you take the cash in the bank minus the debt divided by our, our last 12 months EBITDA. So it's uh, we feel like that's a very healthy place to be. We'll, we'll occasionally flex up to two and a half or three if we're buying a really interesting tech company and we're merging it in. But the yeah. goal is to be back down below two in net within 12 months of buying something. Got it. And and I and I I mean I think I saw somewhere that you guys were all in all combined like close to 400 million. But but anyways. The um, I wanted to ask you here, you guys, and, and talking about that 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 statement that you just made about acquiring companies, you've made quite a bunch of uh, acquisitions. 
Well, we've made, uh, and I think, you know, certainly people make a very big deal of that. But I want to be clear, we've bought 11 companies in 11 years. So we bought an average of one company per year. And in 2018, we didn't buy one company. And some of those deals were aqua hires, where you're buying great technology uh, and you're buying great people, but you're not even buying any revenue. I don't think we've done one deal that had greater than $25 million in revenue in it. Uh, most of the companies we're buying are, you know, 10 to 20 million in sales, uh, you know, great technology, great team, have hit a point where they can't really take their business to the next level. And we merge that into our data cloud or our marketing cloud. And then we roll those products out as an incremental offering into our existing client base. So we're also able to grow those companies pretty quickly once they become divisions inside of our own business. So, for example, we have a growth rate organically of greater than a 20% annual rate averaged over the last three years. Our growth is faster than that because we've bought companies on top of that. Got it. And, 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 and I think that, look, acquiring companies, I've, I've done that as well. But I think that the toughest part is, is really the integration. Integration is a beast. So what have you learned about integration? Well, it is hard. It's always harder than you think it's going to be. There's, listen, there's four things we really look for before we buy the company. And the interesting part about it really is the integration starts when you decide you want to buy somebody. So there are lots of companies that we think are great businesses that we've looked at that we have not bought because we didn't think we could properly integrate them. So we, we really boil it down to a roadmap. The other thing we've done differently at Zeta than we've done at any of the other companies I've owned is we built M&A and integration as separate groups outside of our operating function of our business. Because what I found is Whenever you get on a deal to buy somebody or integrate somebody, your core business suffers. By building it as separate groups that don't touch the operating infrastructure of the day-to-day business, we don't see that normal downturn in our core businesses while we're buying and integrating new companies. Quite the contrary, they can continue to flourish while we wrap other, other businesses in that give them new products to grow with. Got it. Got it. Really cool. And, and I mean, the growth has been unbelievable. I mean, I think I, I saw somewhere reported that the valuation is over like 1.3 billion. So that's, that's really cool. I mean, congratulations on that. So, so I wanted to ask you on the, um, on the, on, on really building the business itself. I mean, you have there at the end, it's all about people. So you said you have like 1400 people right now. We do. Yeah. Although 750 of our employees are at our campus or offices in India, uh, we have about, 500 employees in the United States. Got it. So, so in terms of, of hiring, because you, you need to become a, a rock star at hiring. No? So, so what are the essential traits that you typically look for in people when you're hiring? Well, one of the things we really over-index on here is intelligence. Uh, it's funny because we've, we've brought some new people in over the last couple of years. And the thing they always say to me first is, I can't believe how smart everybody who works here is. Now, let me be clear, that excludes me. I'm generally, when, when we sit in our, our operating meetings, I'm, I'm, I'm the least educated guy in the room. But at the, at the end of the day, 
you can teach a really smart, hardworking person how to do almost anything, but you really cannot teach somebody how to be smart, no matter how badly you think you can. Now, that's not to say you, people can't get more educated and people can't get more information, but we're, we really over-index on intelligence and hard work. And, and you certainly want people who are also hungry. They want to succeed. They're willing to work hard to get there. Uh, the other thing we've really done is we've been able to very effectively take people who are great, but really not the right people to take us to the next level and either transition them out of the organization with no bad blood and, and really staying friends with them or finding other roles internally for them. And that's an art. That is, yeah. that is not a science. That's an art. Uh, and but listen, if you, if you talk to my investors, they'd say I way overpay on severance and we do way too much for the people leaving. But, you know, I really live in this. It's a, it's a small world and it's a short life. And we try to get along with everybody, which is not to say it works for everybody. I mean, you could you could look at some of the companies we've bought where we've bought companies that had three or four hundred employees. And in the first six months, we're moving 200 of those jobs over overseas uh, which is not uh, not a happy experience for the people who you're you're moving out. But as as harsh a reality as this is, is if you don't make the businesses profitable and you don't get them to be a division, not a separate entity, you're never going to succeed as a whole. Uh, so, you know, sometimes you have to make hard decisions. Now, the, the other thing you have to know as an entrepreneur is what are you not good at? And I will tell you, at 23 years old, I thought I could do everything. At 48 years old, I realized that I'm really good at certain things and there are other people who are substantially better than me. And I try to go out and get the people who are better than me to do the functions that I'm not exceptional at. So if you look at Steve Gerber, who's our president and COO, Columbia MBA, uh, was at Bain uh, and Company for many years then went to Digitas, was part of the team that helped sell it uh, for you know, billions of dollars. Our CFO, Jared Yates, was the CFO of Jackson Hewitt. And before that was you know the, one of the guys who was one of the early team members to help build EXL. Steve Vine, our general counsel, uh, you know, Kay Scholler, NYU Law School, uh, you know, was it registry.com, one of you know, one of the smartest deal guys out there. I could go through the entire list of the, 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 the senior team and how good they are at their functions. And, you know, part of growing up as an entrepreneur is really empowering your people and letting them do their jobs. Uh, I can't say I'm always exceptional at that, but I can say I'm substantially better than I was 25 years ago, uh, 26 years ago when I started my first company. Got it. It makes total sense. I mean, and, and one thing that was uh, that I was present to now and, and probably the people that are listening are going to be thinking like, wow, uh, he, he must be like so busy and his day must must seem like crazy. So so just out of curiosity, how, how do you do the breakdown of like a typical work day for you? What does it look like? Well, it depends on where I am. So, uh, you know, I, I, I live between New York, L.A., D.C. and Miami. I'm a Florida resident. Uh, when I'm down in Florida and going to our office in Miami, my work day is different than my day in New York, but, but I'm in New York today. So you know, I wake up at six o'clock every day, uh, wherever I am generally in the world. 
I will, depending on where I am, deal with the other time zones. So, for example, this morning at six, I was focused on what was going on in Europe and India. Uh, I then work out pretty much every morning. I then have uh, I have four children. Uh, my oldest, Isabel, is 18, uh, and she's she's going to Bucknell in the fall. And then uh, my uh, my middle daughter, Amelia, is 16. My son, Carter, is turns 15 on Monday. And then my youngest daughter, Kayla, has uh, just turned 21 months. So we've got a pretty big range. Uh, so I generally give her breakfast in the morning and hang out with her uh, and, and talk to my big kids. And then, uh, you know, generally have some coffee with my wife. So I get to see her at least part of the day. Then I get to work around 930, where I generally have between 10 and 12 meetings or calls, including a lunch every day, up until about 6, 630. Uh, and then generally, I'm doing a drinks meeting when I'm in New York, and then I have a dinner meeting after that, which, which I have both today. I'll get home around 10, uh, have a glass of wine with my wife, catch up with her about her business. She's got a really cool business called Rethink Beautiful, where they're, they're really trying to help people rethink beauty and understand fashion. Uh, and we'll catch up on what's going there. And then I tend to go to bed between 12 and 1 in the morning and then wake up the next day at 6 again. And it starts all over again. <laughs> really cool, really cool. So so knowing what you know now, David, this is um, a question that I typically ask the, the folks that, that we have here on the show. Knowing what you know now, if you could go back to the past and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? Well, I always, and I get asked this question on stage a lot, and, and I I generally get a lot of laughs out of the answer, but it's the truth. If I could go back and tell myself anything, I would go back to 2004 and say, buy as much Google stock as you possibly could. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But I guess from, a, from an operator perspective. From an operator perspective, <laughs> really, you know, it takes a naturally optimistic person to become an entrepreneur. What I try to caution my friends who are entrepreneurs is to really focus on an aptitude for risk, not just a blind risk. Meaning, when I was a young man, I would take a yellow piece of legal pad paper and I'd write, I'd put a line down the center and I'd write on the left, What's my upside? And I'd write on the right, what's my downside? That's really where it started. And if I could lose a dollar and make 10, that was a great trade. If I could lose 10 to make a dollar, that was a really bad trade, right? So you fine tune those skills over 25 to, to 26 years of being an entrepreneur, but temper yourself, stay optimistic, but don't get overly optimistic and focus on building an aptitude for risk. What's my upside versus my downside? Most entrepreneurs know they got to work their asses off to be successful. Most entrepreneurs know they need a big market opportunity. Most entrepreneurs know that raising outside capital comes with pain, but also comes with with real opportunities that can go from there, right? So there's a whole lot of things that are pretty well known. One of the things that's not talked about as much, in my opinion, is this aptitude for risk. And that's something that I would really talk to entrepreneurs about, if, or, or at least to myself about, if I could go back 20 or 30 years. OK, 
Got it. Got it. Makes complete sense, uh, David. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? So, uh, it, it, you know, probably my, my email address, which is dsteinberg at Zeta Global, uh, is, is a really good way to reach me. Uh, and, you know, always interested in hearing from entrepreneurs, probably a little less so service providers. I get, I get a lot of that through LinkedIn already. But, uh, but, but really uh, love hearing from entrepreneurs and, and love seeing where we can be helpful. I should also point out, we have a, a, a fund called Cavus Investment Corp, where we invest into cool new startups and entrepreneurs, where we think there's an opportunity for us to invest capital through Cavus and then do partnerships through Zeta. Uh, and we've done, you know, 27 investments so far. So it's been been really fun for us. Uh, so if opportunities come up like that, we always want to hear about them. Amazing. Well, David, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Thanks. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.